if you were worried about that. We will have those. But this morning, as we uh, continue learning about the hymn, Amazing Grace, I hinted at this a little bit last week, but just want to jump back into it. For anyone that knew John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, for anyone that knew him throughout his childhood years, teen years, even early 20s, for anyone that knew him, he was the last person anyone would expect to write a song about God's grace. We know him that way now, but no one thought that he was going to be the guy to do such a thing. Growing up, he was a rebellious teenager. And I'm not just talking a little bit rebellious, like big time rebellious, to the point that his bad decisions eventually forced him into the British Navy. And as a man in the British Navy, it wasn't long before he went from being a naval sailor to a naval deserter. He tried to desert his role as a member of the armed forces in the British Navy. And there was a huge punishment that came in his life for that crime. Last week, I told you the story of his near-death experience on a ship in the Atlantic Ocean around March 1748. And that was the beginning of God's work to soften John Newton's hard heart. Later that summer, after that close call, Newton was offered this opportunity to work on another ship work on the crew of another ship, the ship called the Brownlow. The ship he was first on when he had that near-death experience was a cargo ship. This ship, the Brownlow, was a ship that transported slaves from Africa to England or from Africa to America. John Newton was a crew member on a slave ship and later in his life actually became the captain of a slave ship. Just from some, for some historical context, a job like this was normal in Newton's day. No one at that point thought twice about whether the slave trade was right or wrong. And as we'll see in a few weeks, later in life, Newton was one of the first and the, most, the loudest voices to advocate for abolishing the slave trade in Britain. But at this point in his life, when he went on the ship, that, that was not the case. A couple years after being on the ship and being on this crew, around 1750, he married a woman named Mary Catlett, a girl that he loved since he was 17 years old. And they got married when he was 25. Many people called her Polly for a nickname. And they had a beautiful marriage. We'll talk about that more next week as well. But later as I mentioned, becomes captain of his own slave ship. And as he does different voyages, he's about to go out on another voyage. And right before he's about to leave for this voyage, has an epileptic seizure that prevents him from going. He had never had a seizure before that point in his life, and he never had a seizure again. But that seizure ended his career as a captain and sailor. And after that point, other career opportunities opened. But as he was serving in these other jobs, he kept studying the Bible. God was working on his heart. He kept reading Christian books. He kept talking to pastors and other Christians that he knew. He was trying to figure out who Jesus was, how to follow him, how to honor him. And eventually, through this long and winding path, the Lord led him to be a pastor. And it was as a pastor, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that he 
wrote the song Amazing Grace to help serve his people. The reason I fill in those timelines for you about John Newton is because I want you to see Newton's story of grace didn't start and end with that stormy night on the ocean. It wasn't just this big splash, big event, and then his life was just smooth and faithful after that. God continued by his grace to guide him, to teach him. And it just goes to show that whether it's John Newton or you and I today, none of us ever outgrow our need for God's grace. None of us. God saves us by his grace, but he also day after day after day, circumstance after circumstance, season after season, teaches us by his grace, molds us by his grace, transforms us by his grace. And this morning, we're looking at verse 2 that Rick quoted at the beginning of the service, verse 2 of the hymn, where John Newton writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." The big truth for us this morning is God's grace relieves our fears by teaching us God is greater than all our fears. God's grace relieves our fears by teaching us God is greater than all our fears. And we're going to see that from Psalm 86 that we have been walking through this morning in our service. So go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 86. Psalm 86. The book of Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. If you're not familiar with where that is, so just open to the middle. You'll likely land in the book of Psalms, Psalm 86. And it's on page 494 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to read along there. Psalm 86, page 494. Verse 2 of the hymn, Amazing Grace, might sound a little contradictory. Grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Which is it? Did grace teach my heart to fear, or did grace take away my fears? The answer is yes. Both. And we're going to see this interaction between fear and grace all from Psalm 86. And the first thing we're going to see is David's fear. David's fear. Psalm 86 was written by King David. And this reality connects us back to the start of this series when we learned John Newton was reading 1 Chronicles 17 when he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And 1 Chronicles 17 is a chapter about God's promise to David as the king. And just like John Newton needed God's grace day after day, so did King David. He went through hard and challenging circumstances that tested his faith. And what we have in Psalm 86 is just one example of that. Let's look at the first seven verses together. Psalm 86, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. 
you can hear from the very beginning of this psalm, David needs help. David is afraid. He says in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. He says in verse 2, Preserve my life. Save my life, God. Rescue me here. Help me here. And down in verse 7, he says, In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. I'm poor and needy. Save my life. This is a day of my trouble. We don't know the specifics at, at this point of exactly what's happening to David that's causing him to cry out to God like this. But we do know David's not writing this psalm during a really comfortable, easy time in his life. It's the opposite of that. David was under the promises of God. He was the king of God's people. He was a godly and faithful leader. Yet none of that made him immune to fear or worry. If there was a guy who we thought could potentially be somewhat worry-free or fear-free, you think it could be someone like King David. He's heard the promises of God. He, he rules over God's people. But he still has reasons to cry out for the Lord's help. He still has reasons to cry out for God. God, pay attention to me. Pay, notice what's happening to me. And you and I don't have the same fears or worries as David did, but we all, every single person in this room, we all have worries and fears. Some of us fear the future. You fear things you know are coming up in the future. You fear what's unknown about your future. Maybe you're a person who worries about political matters or global crises that are happening right now or could happen. You worry about your kids and decisions that they'll make or circumstances that they're in. You worry about your parents and how they're doing, their health. You worry about a job situation. You fear certain relationships being messed up or harmed. You fear or worry about money. You fear health. Maybe you just carry around this constant, nothing super bad is happening right now, but I just fear the next tragedy that's going to come to myself or to the world. And those are all real concerns. Those are all good things to be concerned about and to think about. And we all have fears, and we're going to continue to have fears. I'm not promising at the end of this sermon we're all walking out of here fear-free. It's impossible. But even though we're all going to continue to have fears, the question I want us to think about is what's the scale of your fears in relation to your God? What's the scale of your fears in relation to your God. Growing up as a kid, we had a train set at our house that my dad and I would work on together. And train tracks built it on this table up in this room above the garage, and the train tracks went around the table, and it had this cave that it went through, this tunnel and a little waterfall, and built little buildings and a town. And it was, it was the coolest thing as a kid to go up and play with this and, and work with my dad on it. But train sets have scales to them. There's a a certain scale. There's an H-O scale. There's a G scale. There's an O scale. And the reason train sets have scale is so everything stays in proportion. You don't want to have a train on your train set and then a person that's bigger than the train. Just doesn't look very realistic at that point. You want it to look like a train set in a nice town, not some like sci-fi horror movie from the 60s or 70s going for something a little different. So you got to keep things within the scale. So we had an HO train, so you buy HO buildings and HO people and HO cars, so it all looks in proportion. 
Sometimes our fears are out of proportion with our God. Sometimes our fears are really big and our view of God is really small. What's the scale of your fears in relation to your God? It's important to see here in Psalm 86 that David's crying out is not just a cry of fear. It's a cry of faith in the midst of fear. He wants to trust God in the midst of his fear because God's grace relieves our fears by teaching us God is greater than all our fears. Pay attention to David's tight focus here. Look with me, look at this repetition of of you, to you, in you. Look look with me at verse two. Preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Verse three. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. David has this simple dependence on the Lord because he sees his fears and his circumstances and himself in light of who God is. He wants the proportion of his fears to be accurate in light of the size of his God and the character of his God. And when he says in verse two, it might sound a little strange to us at first, preserve my life for I am godly. That might sound like, God, save me. I obey you all the time. Save me. I'm so holy. But I think what it means is, God, save me. I'm a part of your promises and your people. Keep being faithful. Keep being faithful. It's not so much, God, save me. I obey. But God, save me because you're faithful. Save me because you keep your promises. And then I love what David prays in verse 4. He says, gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. God, make me content and glad in you. No matter what's happening around me, make me joyful in you. Make me anchored to you. But but why can he pray that to God? Verse 5, for you or because you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. David knows who to look to when he's afraid, when he's worried, because God's grace has taught him that. And he wants God to keep teaching him that. He prays, be gracious to me. Listen to my plea for grace, O Lord. And because you and I, like David, carry worries and fears on a daily basis, we need God's grace on a daily basis. And that's the next piece here. David's fear, but also God's grace. You'll see the interaction between the two throughout the whole song. God's grace. As we get to verse 8 of Psalm 86, in this next section, David praises God for who he is and what he's done. And this puts his fears at the right scale. This puts his fears in the right proportion, the right perspective. Look what David says in verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Think about the fears and anxiety that David was experiencing and how the truths about God in that section would interact with those fears and anxiety. This section here is going to help us understand what Newton meant when he said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Because verses 8 through 10 show us a view of God that shrinks fear to the right scale. David puts his focus completely above his circumstances. And what you're going to see, I want you to notice this in verses 8 through 10. David starts out really high, really way up, and then slowly comes down to his own personal life and situation. Look with me at verse 8. David starts way above the universe. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. There's no one among the angels or demons or all the so-called gods that are worshipped on the earth. No one that even comes close to who God is. There's no one like him, nor is there anyone that creates what he creates, nor is there anyone that can do what he does. And then David comes down a little lower to the earth. He says in verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord and shall glorify your name. David says, every nation on earth was created by God, and every nation on earth will one day come and worship God. Think about how that truth would have hit David's heart as enemies from other nations are pursuing him. My my enemies may not honor you now, Lord, but they will. They will one day. And then all of this, going from this huge scale down to earth and then down to his own heart, brings about this truth, this statement of absolute truth about who the Lord is. Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That little phrase there in the middle of verse 10, wondrous things, across the Old Testament, The phrase wondrous things often refers to God's action to save his people. A lot of times it refers to the way he saved his people in the Exodus, out of slavery in Egypt. You are great and you do wondrous things. God, you're great and exalted. You are all-powerful and all-knowing, and you save and rescue your people. And you you alone are God. In all of this, David is remembering who God is. He's remembering what God has done. He is rehearsing this massive view of God. Saying he alone is God because he alone creates. He alone saves. He alone deserves praise. So I trust him alone in the midst of my fear. David's description here of God is an example of what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. This is the fear of the Lord that David's articulating. The fear of the Lord is not running away because you're scared of God. 
The fear of the Lord is knowing God in a way that forms this godly mixture of awe and reverence and love and worship in your heart. To fear something means to be overwhelmed by it. To fear something means to be controlled by it. And to fear the Lord means to be overwhelmed by his greatness, by his love. To fear the Lord means to be controlled by his power and guided by his grace. This type of understanding of who God is isn't something we just discover on our own. David didn't just come to this conclusion by himself. It's something God graciously leads us to. Last week I said that God's grace is his saving action towards his people, his one-way love towards his people when we don't deserve it. And last week we saw in Paul's life, like in Newton's life, that when God's grace, when his saving action through Jesus leads you to trust Jesus, to receive his forgiveness, to receive his love, it leaves you amazed that such a great God would show you such undeserved love. And the more and more you experience his grace, the more and more you're in awe of him. The more and more you experience his grace, the more and more you fear the Lord. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. When you know God has defeated the greatest thing you could ever fear, He's defeated your sin. He has defeated death. He has removed his wrath. When you know God has taken care of the greatest fear you could ever have through his son's work on the cross, you can trust he will in his time take care of all other fears that you have. If he has met the most crucial need of my life, I can trust him to take care of all the other needs I have. He saved you. He will keep you. He saved you. He will always be with you. He was your savior. He will always be your father. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the end of all other fears. God's grace relieves our fears by teaching us God is greater than all our fears. But being saved by God, of course, does not mean you never experience fear or worry ever again. There's still, still a battle. David, David knew that. David experienced that. That's why he prays in verse 11. Look there with me. In the midst of this moment of praise and worship and wrestling with the Lord, he prays to God in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In the midst of this fear and anxiety, this difficulty that David is experiencing, He's saying, God, teach me your way. Don't let me be controlled by my fears. Don't let me be guided down the way of my worries. Teach me your way. Help me walk in your way. Let me be controlled by you. Unite my heart to fear your name. God, my heart feels pulled towards this fear and that fear and those fears. But God, unite my heart to fear you above everything. Is what he's praying. Such a helpful prayer for us to carry into this week. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. God, he's praying, you are greater than all my fears. Help me to believe it and live it. He's just rehearsed these huge truths about God and he's praying, God, make my heart feel that. Make my heart know that and fear you above everything else. 
John Newton knew this battle, this pull of wanting to fear other things more than we fear God, of wanting to be controlled and guided by other things more than we are controlled and guided by God. And he once wrote to a friend, he said, every step along the path of life is a battle for the Christian to keep two eyes on Christ. Every step along the path of life is a battle for the Christian to keep two eyes on Christ. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you you can feel a little bit of what he's writing there. There's so many things, fears that come up, other temptations that come up, other good things that we just want to give more worship and attention to than they really deserve because they're not God. And just kind of draw your eyes away from Jesus. And David's praying, unite my heart to fear your name. God, keep both my eyes on you. Keep both my eyes on you. It's similar to when Jesus is walking out on the water to his disciples who are in the boat. And he invites Peter to walk out, on the wa- walk out on the waves towards him. And in the story, if you're familiar with it, even if you're not, it, it, what happens is Peter gets out of the boat and he starts walking across the water. He's walking on top of water. I don't know if you've ever tried that before. It is impossible. Cannot do it. I've tried it at the pool over and over. I cannot do it. But when, you're walk- when Peter's walking out on the water, he's walking on top of the water and then it says, But when he looked and saw the waves, he started to sink. God, unite my heart to fear your name. Help me to keep both eyes on Christ. When Peter looks at Christ, he keeps walking. When our fears meet God's grace, there's a change that happens. There's a transformation that happens. I'm not saying all at once, but it makes a difference. And that will be, that's what we see in the last section of this psalm. We've seen David's fear. We've seen God's grace. In these last few verses, we see when fear meets grace, when our fears and God's grace meet. Look with me at verse 14. Oh God, insolent men, have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they don't set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. In verse 14, you get this clearer picture of exactly what David was going through. Evil men are chasing down David to kill him. He says in verse 14, Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. Evil men are coming after David. His enemies are are coming for his life to kill him, to take him out. And I think there's a truth for us here. God's grace has relieved David's fears, but that doesn't mean God has removed what caused his fear. 
I don't want us to think that when John Newton writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved," that that means that by God's grace, all the things I fear or worry about are gone. That's not the case. It's not the case for David. That's not the case for us. God's grace doesn't guarantee an easy life or a worry-free life, but knowing God does guarantee an unshakable foundation in life. David's prayer and David's reflection on God, his praising to God, it doesn't change his circumstances. So it's not like, God, this is really hard. I'm going to start worshiping you. Things won't be hard anymore. Many of you know you're living in a circumstance right now maybe. But you know that's not how this works. David's prayer and his worship, it doesn't change his circumstances, but it has changed his perspective. It has changed his fears. Because the foundation of God's grace is uncovered for David and for us in verse 15. There's a really powerful contrast here. In verse 14, David says, God, these men are after me. These men are pursuing me. These men are coming to take me out. But then read verse 15. But you, you hear that contrast? Here's what's happening to me, Lord, but here's who you are. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see David being anchored to the foundation. Lord, this is hard. I'm scared. I'm worried. But I know who you are. Lord, I'm I'm fearful. I'm concerned. But I know who you are. And none of my circumstances will change who you are. And what David says in verse 15 is a word-for-word quote from Exodus chapter 34. And Exodus 34 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament where God describes who he is to his people as the God who keeps his promises, the God who is the God of his people. And what he says to Moses and the people in Exodus 34, Exodus 34 verse 6, it's going to sound very similar to Psalm 86 verse 15. It says, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 86, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Same exact words. And part of this is repeated throughout the whole psalm. Let me show you a couple spots. Verse five, Psalm 86, verse five. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And then in verse 15, what we just saw. David is saying, God, I remember who you have been to your people in the past. And I know that's still who you are. I know you're still the God who keeps his promises. You're still the God who's merciful and gracious. God's amazing grace is woven throughout David's prayer because God's amazing grace is woven throughout the history of his people and God's amazing grace is woven throughout David's life. And what's helpful here is David's experience of God's character leads him to be honest with God about his fears. It is not 
faith to deny or suppress our fears. That's fake. It's not real. Faith is acknowledging your fears, being honest with the Lord and others about your fears, while also knowing and believing the Lord is bigger than your fears, that he's over your fears, trusting that he is above whatever it is that you're worried about. The power of this that David is experiencing, that we can experience, is that God's grace is the permanent circumstance in your life. No matter what happens, no matter what changes about your current situation or your situation in the past or your situation in the future, none of that will change God's love and favor on those who put their faith in Christ. God's grace is the permanent circumstance in your life. No matter what comes this week or what comes this year, God is saving all those who put their faith in Jesus. No matter what fears or worries burden you, you can look to the evergreen truth of a God who will never stop showing grace to his people. This is why in another psalm, Psalm 118, verse 4, the psalmist writes, Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. If you fear the Lord, if you've experienced his grace, you're in awe that he would save someone like you, save a wretch like you, that you were blind but now you see, you were lost but now you're found, and you're in awe of the Lord, let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love will endure forever. Not just his steadfast love will endure for the next year. Not just his steadfast love will endure for the next decade. Not just his steadfast love will endure until my life gets hard again. His steadfast love will endure forever. God's grace relieves our fears by teaching us God is greater than all our fears. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear? How valuable, how incredible did that grace appear the hour I first believed. In this life, we are always going to have fears. But in this life, God is always going to give grace. God's grace is greater than our sin. Therefore, God himself is greater than our fears. And we're going to see this even more as we come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate our Savior.